Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 231 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today for another episode. I know your time is precious and I am just so encouraged by all the positive feedback we've gotten. I've been on the road a lot this fall all across the U.S., coast to coast, and so many of you have stopped. Number one subject of conversation, just thanks for the podcast. Apparently you love the variety. Uh, You love going in depth and it's fun to learn from all kinds of different fields, isn't it? I mean, I really enjoy it. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you who share on social with this on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, thank you to those who email links to your team. Uh, Some of you have told me that uh, you sometimes get accused of spamming your team to death with this stuff. But hey, thank you so much. Really do hope it helps. And today we're going to go into a really fascinating place. I've got a friend of mine, a guy I've known for many, many years, uh, leads a large, thriving multi-site church just east of Toronto. His name is John Thompson. He's also a professor, and he is uh, one of the most, <laughs> yeah, interesting guys I know in terms of charismatic, a little bit Calvinist and Reformed, um, really powerful at connecting with people with deep truths, and he's one of a kind. I mean, he's just one of a kind, and I think you're going to love it. We're going to talk about calling and gifting and how operating outside of either can really be devastating. Um, Now, when we talk about this, you'll hear about it. He's like got a forthcoming book. It is now out, and we will link to everything in the show notes. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 231. His book is called Convergence, and the website is thrivewithconvergence.com. So if you want to know more, it is available. We'll make that all available in the show notes, as well as transcripts of this episode. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback on the transcripts. Uh, We started doing that earlier this fall, so if you missed that, uh, again, the link is in the show notes. So uh, I think you're going to love this episode from John Thompson, who is the teaching and vision pastor at C4 Church east of Toronto. So my guess is you're probably hyper busy getting ready for Christmas and I get it. But here's a question for you. What are you doing in 2019 to help grow your people spiritually, whether that's new people, long-term Christians? I want to tell you about something brand new. It's called the Red Letter Challenge and it can help you. It's a 40-day turnkey church campaign. Okay, do you remember back in the day, Rick Warren's 40 Days of Purpose. It's kind of like that, only it's brand new. It'll give your entire congregation, whether it's big or small, a 40-day dive into the words of Jesus and what they mean for today. It's something you coordinate and sync up with on the weekends, but it's got a daily application. I've read through it. I'm impressed. Um, And I got to tell you, churches that have used the Red Letter Challenge so far have seen small groups grow by an average of 40%, even in large churches. And right now, you can go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry to see the church packages that are ready to go for you, depending on your church size, you can save between 10 and 40%. So what's included? It'll include small group materials, study guides, videos, sermon manuscripts, kids curriculum, even a graphics package. So basically, it's turnkey. You can save 10 to 40% right now by going to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. Uh, You can start with as few as 10 copies, which are perfect for a small group, or 1,000 copies or more. 
If you need any other quantities or information, go to redletterchallenge.com slash carry. They'd be happy to help you. It's not too late to get this implemented by New Year's, believe it or not. It's that turnkey, that done for you. And also thinking about 2019, I really do want to encourage you to think about your digital giving strategy. Frankly, your digital strategy. We live in a world where everything has gone to a hybrid of analog and digital, and most churches are still firmly planted in the analog world. And I really believe you need an engagement strategy because engagement is going to drive future church attendance. So what is your mobile strategy? If you don't have one, you're still stuck on that, you got to check out PushPay. Uh, They are the leader at keeping our industry at the cutting edge of technology. They're basically a technology company and you can customize this for your church. It'll help people give to your church. It'll help people engage with your mission. Last year, they helped more than 7,000 customers process billions of dollars in generosity, and they can help you too. There's a special offer for listeners of this podcast, so go to pushpay.com forward slash carry, and you can sign up to talk to a representative who will tell you about the offer. No obligation, just a chance to talk to an expert in church technology, and I hope you're going to check them out. Well, without much further ado, let us jump into my conversation with my friend, author, speaker, pastor, John Thompson. You're going to love this ride. You're going to love the conversation. It is so fun every time I get together with John. Here we go. Well, I'm so glad to have my good friend, John Thompson, on the podcast with us. John, welcome. Thanks, Gary. Great to be with you. It's been great. We've known each other quite a few years now, and it's been amazing to see what God's done in your life and in your church. So, you're, we're, we're going to talk a lot about spiritual gifting today and calling, but I want to get into, you're in the weird position, and I've met a few leaders like that, where you are actually serving as the lead pastor of the church that you grew up in, right? That's right. So to speak, yeah. yeah. Right. Walk us through how you got involved. Yeah, so um, I was born very close to actually where our main site is at. Uh, my parents were missionaries, so I grew up overseas when I came back. Uh, I was involved in a small little church. I live in Toronto for everyone listening outside of Canada. And I was part of a little small church in Toronto and then had a very unusual moment when I was like 13 years old with Jesus, where he told me I had to attend this church. And so I came to this church. We got involved in the youth group. And I think I became a member at 16 or something like that. And then all these years later, I just finished 20 years full time on staff uh, in June. So I've been part of this church community since I was uh, probably 14 or so. Yeah, and you've got, uh, you were youth pastor, student pastor for a while, and then kind of inherited a church of a thousand people. That's right. As as you say, I think in some of your writings, with no vision in particular and a totally different style. I mean, before you were lead there, you're now 2,600 people, three moving to four locations, lots and lots of people attending your church, which by the way, most listeners are American to this podcast, but in Canada, 2,600 is a giant church. Yeah, like miracle. Huge. Not yeah. a whole lot. Yeah, it's somewhat miraculous. It's a bit like Europe. If you get a church that size, God's right. doing something for sure. But I mean, I remember attending the Global Leadership Summit. It was totally a seeker-sensitive church back in the day when you took it over at 30 years old as the lead pastor. And you got to be one of the most eclectic people I know, and I say that with great affection. Um, I'm going to throw some adjectives your way because I know how much you love labels. Uh, Charismatic, reformed, attractional, strategic, and spontaneous all at once. Yes, that is Is that you? That is is us and that is me. (laughs) 
yeah. We, like I've said to you before in other uh, Canadian podcasts, if you could get yeah. Tim Keller in a room with, I don't know, John Wimber and G.I. Packer and a Southern Baptist preacher and worship like Bethel, you'd be fine at C4. <laughs> it really is. It's it's yep. it's a very, because I preached there for you in the summer and, uh, you know, my wife and I, we've attended there. It is an eclectic mix, but it's wonderful to see what God is doing. How, how did you end up there with, you know, in that really unique spiritual architecture? Yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, you know, every church reflects sort of its le- its leader's story or the leadership story, and that's my story. I'm a third, gener- third culture kid. I've grown up around the world. I'm a fifth generation Christian, lots of different experiences, but I read pretty vastly. And so I think it comes down to calling a gift, as we're going to talk about. And I'm this weird blend also of high leadership gifts, high teaching gifts, and some charismatic gifts all found in one body. So even that uh, tension, living with that tension in myself and my academic side, you know, I've done historical theology. I sort of bring that all into one room. And, you know, we we basically say around here, um, allegiance, truth, and power are critical, and that's key to discipleship. A lot of churches are good at dealing with allegiance, who, who owns you and loves you and who do you follow, but they're terrible at truth. Lots of churches are great, good at truth, but they never deal with allegiance and they never touch power. Other people are all about power and experiences and they don't. But we, we've we determined in Jesus's life and the scriptures, allegiance, truth, and power are always these things that are, need to be held in tension. And if you're missing part of the stool, you wobble. If you're missing two, you fall over. So we made the determination to keep the whole family under one roof, hell or heaven, high water, and see what we could do with it. And so far we're doing okay. Well, I mean, Toronto is about as post-Christian, post-modern as you can oh, yeah. get in North exactly. America. You guys are on the edge of Toronto, the east side. Most of the larger churches in Toronto are on the west side. Um, you know how cities are like that. Uh, but you're right in the heart of post-modern, post-Christian Canada. Yep. How have you found that eclectic style? Uh, because you are somewhat charismatic, uh, somewhat reformed. What is resonating with the culture you're in? Yeah, so um, maybe I'll start with an articulation of our culture. And I used yeah. this when I spoke at your conference. Remember I talked about the two gorillas. My, my take these days on culture is um, we as Orthodox, historic, confessional Christians are living between two large gorillas that are fighting for the soul of the world. One of them is the secular, militant, sexual revolution touching all parts of society, and then the other one is the rise of religious fundamentalism that uses violence in the name of God. And 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 the problem is both of those camps think we're with the other camp. Hmm. So so the secular sexual revolution calls us medieval and backwards and hateful and homophobic and all these words and says, oh, you're just a bunch of religious fundamentalists. And then the true religious fundamentalists say, oh, you're secular and you're compromised. And we as Christians stand in the middle with scripture and tradition and Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. And we say, actually, you're both wrong because actually we're against legalism and licentiousness and grace and truth is the center of what we are. So, I mean, that's a small articulation of how we, what we experience in our church culture around us. And we found that when we started uh, affirming um, supernatural, the move of God, but through gift orientation, we realized that 
a diversity is critical and a, and a both end on either or mentality is really helpful. So when you start really legitimizing power gifts, word gifts and love gifts, that's how Bobby Clinton uh, used that those categories years ago, you open three doors and it actually becomes three ways to do apologetics well. When you do love gifts well, you do social justice well. When you do truth well, you intellectually engage. When you do power well, 80% of the world comes to faith through experience, not through intellect. And so again, just for Christian leaders listening, if you got Ravi Zacharias sitting beside John Wimber and Mother Teresa, and they're all in one church doing their jobs really well, there are three doors are going to open to the same center, which is Jesus. And if you're not legitimizing some of the gifts in your church, then actually you're closing doors to engage uh, with people and even with the kingdom of darkness. So so we found that uh, by legitimizing what Jesus did, but what Paul did, but incarnationally working it out in our suburban Starbucks, Walmart style culture, uh, a lot more people, uh, genuine seekers, skeptics, nominal Christians, Muslims, Hindus, witches, Buddhists, etc., are coming to faith because of that. Yeah, you're getting uh, you're getting a real eclectic mix of people with different backgrounds, as we yeah. are seeing at Connexus Church as well. What do they seem? I mean, other than the obvious answer of Jesus, what do you think they're connecting with? Can you can you walk us through how? the charismatic meets the mind, how the experience, the transcendent meets the imminent. Yeah, and I, and I think, again, this is, we have made spiritual gifts such a center point of everything we do as the church that what you just described, which most people feel is dichotomy, isn't dichotomy at all. And uh, we, I see this in the life of Jesus. I see this in the life of Peter and Paul. I see this in the early church. And so when someone, we have what I call a biblical uh, theology of encounter. Uh, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But we teach our church that God says he is found in certain environments at all times. You know, where two or three gather in my name, I am there. Uh, you know, I inhabit the praises of my people. Uh, Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, the, the literal power of God. Second Timothy 3.16, the, the word of God is living, you know. So what we, what we started doing is we started saying to our people, and we're not even at gifts yet, we're going to make sure that our discipleship model and all of what we do is based on where we know Jesus is always found. And we're going to teach our people to come with an expectancy that whether we're feeling them, we're excited, we're sad, we're depressed, we're happy, we know he is there. So number one, biblical, not smoke and lights expectation, not hype expectation, biblical expectation for the presence of God has changed our church. And that's the root of our discipleship. Then we started saying we need, so that's about encounter. And then we said, we need to actually really get serious about spiritual gifts. And our, our, our big thing is that we actually believe Jesus used spiritual gifts. So if I've got two minutes, let me work this out in the book. Yeah, lots of time. Yeah, so Philippians 2 is that amazing Christological passage that says, you know, Jesus, you know, became one of us. And it's this incredible passage. And it says, and you know it well, in, in Philippians, he says, you know, he chose not to grasp onto divinity even though he's equal with God. And we've all studied this in seminary and taught on this. But the question we asked, other than dying on a cross or becoming a human, how did Jesus not grasp or use his godness between Christmas and Easter? Because most people, when you talk to them about spiritual gifts, they go, yeah, yeah, I believe in them. But most people are gift atheists, first of all. They say they hmm. believe it, but they never function. Uh, or they say it's in another church. I'm not talking about cessationism, different podcast. I'm, we're not cessationists here. But but deeper than that, I most people, when I talk to them about gifts, they go, yeah, but Jesus was what? God, and I'm not, so I need to adjust my expectation. 
And then I read in John things like, but you'll do the same things I'm doing. And I go, how do I resolve this? So I read Philippians and said, Jesus, you know, who was fully God, uh, chose not to grasp divinity. And I asked, well, how does Jesus not grasp divinity between Christmas and Easter? And then I tied it to his baptism. And you know, the famous story, Jesus is baptized, the heavens rip open, the Father says, this is my son, and the Spirit descended upon him. And then his ministry started. And I always teach this. Before Jesus was baptized in water and in the Spirit, he never healed, he never cast out demons, he had no new teaching, no one followed him. And right after that happened, you see in Luke, it says he's filled with the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit. When he goes into the wilderness, the Mark account says he's forced into the wilderness by the Spirit. Push. And I'm like, what is the third person of the Trinity forcing the second person? The like, and, and why did Jesus even need the Spirit? He's God. Hmm. And then I was like, oh, hold on a second. See, this is how this works out. Jesus, Philippians 2 is upstairs. The Gospels are downstairs. Jesus isn't just our Savior and our leader and our Lord. He's also our model. And Jesus didn't grasp divinity, not just by taking on human flesh, but he was led by the Spirit exclusively. In other words, he never used his divinity when he was on earth. So this changed everything for us. So when you when he cast out demons, you're telling me he didn't do it out of his godness? Yep. When he healed someone, he didn't just pull out his God card? Nope. When he taught the Sermon on the Mount, it, it was well, then what was that? Well, it was the Spirit. Well, how does that work? Well, and then I went, oh my goodness, Jesus used spiritual gifts. Jesus had spiritual gifts. And if Jesus had spiritual gifts, and we as the body of grace together have spiritual gifts, then we can do the same things that Jesus did on earth because he's not just Savior, Lord, or model. Well, well and, and by the way, I know this is a, a brief podcast. So we work this out way more. The point is when that resonated and dawned in our church, from charismatics to Baptists to Reformed people to everyone in between, everyone went, oh my goodness, if the center of Jesus's ministry wasn't his divinity, but his reliance on the spirit to use spiritual gifts, and we have the same gifts as a community, we need to make spiritual gifts at the very center, more important than programming, programmatic stuff, because that's where the power is. And then I uttered these words where I said, spiritual gifts is the only ongoing place of power to do ministry from. Hmm. Natural gifts and learned gifts are great. And Bobby Clinton years ago at Fuller worked this out where he said, you know, natural gifts, you're born with it. Like, Carrie, you are born with things uh, that I am not. They're just in the DNA and they come natural to you. Uh, there are other things that come that we can acquire, we can learn. And a lot of leaders, pastors, clergy, nonprofit leaders, a lot of what they do ministry out of or work out of is out of those two categories. And they can be used and they're great, but they're not guaranteed sources of power. Spiritual gifts in the scriptures is the only guarantee where the well is deeper and it's not from you. And yet I find in most churches, big, small, charismatic or not, we put almost all our eggs in every other basket except that one called spiritual gifts. And it's fatal. Well, this is so interesting, you know, and you, uh, you and I uh, did the Canadian Church Leaders Conference together earlier in 2018, and you gave a talk on spiritual gifts that kind of brought down the house. And uh, I know that there are a number of people who not only re-listened to that talk, went to your church website, listened to everything you had uh, spoken on that subject is just fascinating, and it's a different kind of teaching. And that's what I wanted to talk about, because we have a lot of pastors who are tired and exhausted, who've never had teaching around this. We got, you know, a lot of people who are operating out of their natural gift set. And uh, a lot of business leaders who maybe are, you know, attending church or thinking about their giftedness, 
but I have, have never really heard sort of this this take on it, and that's why I wanted to have you on as a guest and to really drill down on it. Um, so you know, most people would say, "Let me let me just pick myself as an example for a second, sure. okay?" Carrie, you're a born leader and a born communicator. You've got you've got leadership gifts. You're the kind of guy who's always in the room. If there's no leader, you'll make yourself the leader, and you know you're a natural communicator. So you're saying those are not necessarily spiritual gifts, correct? 100%. So I have tons of friends in my Connect group that I've been part of for 12 years, and they're all teachers. And when we had the conversation with spiritual gifts, I asked the teachers in the room, do you think you have the spiritual gift of teaching? Every single one of them said no. And I said, tell Mm. me why. And they said, oh, we love teaching. We view it as a calling in the sense of we find purpose in it. But here's the categories I use. I say, do you find profound spiritual joy when you do it? Do you feel closer to Jesus when you do it? Uh, do you, uh, Do you see the kingdom move forward when you do it? And they go, no, we love kids. And yes, can you, again, don't get me, don't get me wrong. Can all things be used for the kingdom? Can we bring salt and light yeah. everywhere? Yes. But that's not an endowment from the Spirit. See, here's the first thing. You only get spiritual gifts after you get saved. Hmm. See, this is from the charismatic side where you've got to be really careful. Lots of people have experiences that appear like spiritual gifts and are gift orientations, but they're pre-conversion. Well, if they're pre-conversion, they're not from our side. What? So you're saying that my leadership before I became a Christian oh, wasn't no, I, of God? No, power gifts. When it comes to power gifts, ah, weird okay. spiritual experiences, right? So I talk to people that say, oh, I've always had this sense of the supernatural and evil. And my mom had it. My grandma had it. My great grandma. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not how our side works. You get spiritual gifts after you get converted, not before. Right. And so just because you have it doesn't mean it's, it's right or wrong. It's not necessarily an endowment of the spirit. Well, stay with my wonky little example and just pick on me for now. Um, So, uh, you know, you were asking that little list of questions that you ask your teachers. I would say, actually, yeah, I do feel closer to God, you know, on my good days, when (laughs) when I'm leading and when I'm communicating, that these have been gifts that have moved the kingdom, you know, forward to some degree, the mission forward. Uh, in preaching, in, you know, even this podcast to a certain extent or some of the writing I've done. Um, So is there a way that your natural gifting can marry, like become a spiritual gifting? I'm just just trying to understand. Totally get it. And I would say to you, I mean, Carrie, you came to faith at a very young age. I know I your story. Yeah. And we're both Calvinists anyway. So it doesn't yeah, I gave matter. my life to Christ 600 yeah. times when I was a teenager. Because every right. time yeah. I sinned, maybe it was 6,000. <laughs> so I've, 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 I'm pretty secure in that. Mm-hmm. You're in. But I, the process of discovering the gifts is fine. I would say, because yeah. I know you, I've observed you, you yeah, absolutely yeah. have a spiritual gift of teaching. No, but, but this pres- would be like, think about, th- I, I don't want to interrupt. I just want to have a yeah. good conversation. Yeah. But like, think about the business leader who's like, wow, I'm gifted at sales or, you know, and I'm making money for the kingdom or Praise God. the teacher who, or, or you know, the, the serial entrepreneur or yeah. uh, the accountant who does incredible books and puts yeah. people who should be in jail in jail. Um, yeah. And I go, yes to all of that. And embedded in that might be spiritual gifts, but let's uh, actually sit back and ask the question. So they're not mutually exclusive. No, they can uh, be. But here's the critical thing. Yeah, yeah. They're not guaranteed sources of power. There you go. And see, that's the thing. Like that's the well, that's the, so you asked me the question, how are we surviving a post-Christian environment? And the question right. I started asking was, what has every generation of Christians in 2000 years in every environment gone back to in times of persecution or when things didn't work? And here's what I discovered, spiritual disciplines, 
spiritual gifts and relying on a power that actually wasn't their own. Really? Of course, because if you look at Jesus as model and you center your whole church's ministry on the modality of Jesus, Jesus never used his divinity. So that means that he had to use spiritual disciplines to hear what the father was even telling him. Hmm. He walked. So if, if, you know, Dallas Willard was right. If you want to be like Christ, you got to walk in the lifestyle he walked. But Dallas was incomplete because part two is if you want to walk like Jesus, you have to walk in the power he walked in. How do you do that? Spiritual gifts. But it's not a individualistic statement. You carry, I jot it. We, the body of Christ, do this together. But when you lose disciplines and you lose gifts, you lose intimacy and power, and you always will end up relying on natural acquired programming, which has no guaranteed power, which is crushed when things get difficult. Okay. Well, that that's fascinating. So that's helpful. That's clarifying. So you got people thinking, okay, that's great. <laughs> I have a rough idea what my natural gifts are, right? Some yep. people have the gift of hospitality. Some people, yep. you know, man, I can make a meal and make people feel comfortable in my home. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are gifted. Some people are artists. Some people are whatever. So how do you discover your spiritual gifts? How do you figure out whether your natural gifting can be or is a spiritual gift? And have you got some stuff that's hidden that you never knew about? So first thing I think that we did that changed our whole church is I preached on it from the front for like 11 weeks. Because most spiritual gifts, things, it's it's never talked about, or it's in a Sunday school classroom, it's some weird test. Have you any raised, raised anyone from the dead? And usually it's no. And so, you know. You, what, that would be you know, no what, for me. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. what would you do with that? So what we did is we actually preached on every gift, what it looks like, what it feels like, where what it looks like in our church and how it's going to function. And we led the whole church through this systematic building of a common sort of script. So we all had the same background. I used this example, I think, when I was with you. The problem in a post-denominational environment is you've got uh, pagans, and I mean that in the non-pejorative sense, literal pagans, and seekers and skeptics mixing with Christians from all these backgrounds. And let's say I preach a really amazing message, and it goes over really well, and it's biblical, and it resonates. The, the Baptistic person will come up and say, John, with their ESV Bible, of course, you know, good word. <laughs> right? Good word. And two seconds later, later, a charismatic will come up and go, oh my goodness, John, you were so anointed and the spirit of God was all over you and there's auras. You know. Now, if I put them in the same room, they wouldn't even think they're talking about the same thing. And then the non-Christians like, I have no freaking clue what you're even talking about. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so Good motivational we, speech. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's no mm-hmm. problem. <laughs> so what we said is we have to build a common script of what does the Bible actually say about gifts and be serious about it. Yeah. Then what does it look like for us And then have you ever had this experience before? And by the way, it's very clear in the scriptures, God sovereignly assigns them. You can ask, expect to know, but you can ask. And then let's see. And then what we did after that is we had three huge potlucks. This is when we were smaller. Okay. And we broke it down to love gifts, word gifts, power gifts. And we walked through every one systematically. And then we had all the people who had love gifts show up in a room and meet each other. And then we talked about how do you know if you have this gift? And of course, by the way, the love gift gathering was incredible. Every Hmm. gift of encouragement and hospitality, the food was outstanding and everything. Then the word people came the next week. The food was terrible. Everyone was arguing, (laughs) you know, like it was so hilarious. And then, of course, we're not charismatically inclined by history. We had everyone uh, who might be charismatic by power orientation come and they were all checking each other out to see if they had demons and if there's translating. Hilarious. The, the point was, and the food was better actually that week. It was the word people that were terrible at all of it. In the, they wanted to argue over Kelvin. The, the heart of it was, though, when you affirm the gifts as the center of all you do, 
suddenly that means your services have to change, your recruiting has to change, your whole worldview has to change. Mm -hmm. When you legitimize something from the pulpit, and we all know this, when a pastor legitimizes from the pulpit, says to the congregation, I'm allowed to talk about this here. Mm. And we're seeing that, for example, right now with mental illness and all this, where pastors are fighting that we're going to talk about this. Well, there's this huge underground river of spiritual experiences in every church, conservative, charismatic, that are never really understood, theologically worked through, and talked about that need to be. And when you legitimize it, you sort of open, not Pandora's box, but heaven's box, and you begin to work it out. And then you got to talk about character. And then you got to start saying, well, how does it work here versus the church down the street? But what we found is the spirit of God's presence just washed through our church. There was all sorts of conversions, all sorts of people started doing ministry. And then we started asking the question, how does every ministry, how does a children's ministry, how does a youth ministry, how does preaching here, how does prayer here have to have a gift worldview not just a programmatic worldview. And we're still working it out. But the amazing yeah. thing is people, it's done in community, but the, the way you identify is a common theology, a common core understanding, and then dialogue in community. Because you got to check, is the character right? Are the motives right? Tell me about your history. Is this been something for a long time or something you really want but isn't genuine? But all I'm trying to share at this moment is it, it changed everything here. And we've never been the same. Uh, and I've seen that. I've seen that. So people are wondering, okay, love gifts, word gifts, power gifts. Can you can you break uh, like you break out a few examples? Like, what yeah. is a love gift? Yeah, sure. So I'll just give you some quick quick examples. So the gift of mercy is a love gift. That's an obvious one, right? Yeah. And people with the gift of mercy are fundamentally supernaturally drawn to brokenness. They love it. Now, here's by the way, if you identify if you have spiritual gifts or you don't, what makes you angry in the church usually is where you're gifted. Really? So let me just break this out. Uh, I call this gift tension. So all the so, people who left your church are spiritually gifted? Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm just being they, funny. They I'm poking they fun. They absolutely are. So, so yeah. catch this. A mercy person always is asking the question, why don't you care more for A? Right. And they are fundamentally drawn. And so when I interview, literally in a diagnostic way, people that get to mercy, they go, oh my goodness, I just love sitting with a broken person and hearing their story or being with this broken group. And there's this supernatural presence of Jesus and this attraction to this brokenness. Now, you may sit here and go, oh my goodness, that takes everything out of me. I want to die when I'm in those environments. I, yeah. I have to muster all my pastoral courage. See, that's the difference between gift and discipline right there. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's not just about ease, it's supernatural ease. You don't feel happy all the time, but you feel joy. There are always supernatural results that are stronger with someone who has a gift versus someone who doesn't. So someone operating out of their natural strength yep. or a discipline would yep. not see the kind of fruit in dealing with the broken that somebody who's operating out of a spiritual gift. Of course. Okay. Because that's the way it's, and here it's like what Paul talks about in marriage. This is about mutual submission. Right. This is about mutual submission. And that's why you've got to affirm all the gifts, know who's got what gifts. So literally, step by step, situationally, like Jesus teaches us, because he was led by the Spirit, situationally listening to the Father, we're mutually submitting back and forth in situations. So I'm in situations all the time in this big mega church, almost 3,000 people, 38 staff, where I'll be in meetings and I will, with all, you know, doctor, you know, vision teaching pastor, I will go irrelevant is that person has this gift, I'm going to step back for a moment. Hmm. And everything changes. 
So uh, mercy is a great So mercy word. would be a love gift. Love, what would another one be? Uh, uh, hospitality. Hospitality, yeah. Is, is definitely one. Now, uh, hospitality is a version of helps. Uh, our churches are filled with people with the gifts of helps. Uh, but the, again, when you interview them, it's so important. They love making coffee. And when you ask them why, you take 20 minutes to ask why, they don't go, well, someone needs to do coffee. And we all need, they go, oh my goodness, that I get to serve coffee so people could come hear your sermon. You're like, what? It, there's this supernatural endowment that they find, but there's also a dark side to the gifts. People with mercy, you know, Paul says, you, you be cheerful because they can feel stepped on. People with helps sometimes need to learn how to say no, right? So there's this huge dialogue that needs to ke- take place. But the key thing out of Paul, of course, out of 1 Corinthians is to validate all the gifts, to to bring character in all the gifts. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is right in the middle of it. Yeah, and not yeah. only that, to make sure that the lesser parts have special honor. And that's something that's been lost. In what the would a lesser part be? Well, helps yeah. is a great example of that. Someone's making coffee. They love doing it. They feel super nice. Someone's shoveling snow or oh, yeah. like trimming, trimming the garden. Whatever. It's funny about hospitality too. So my wife is a professionally trained chef. She loves interior design and, and she's my wife. So obviously she has the gift of hospitality. Not on your life. <laughs> See, and this is this really brings us home. So my wife doesn't love a thousand people being in our home. My wife doesn't feel spiritual joy when everyone's around the table. And she, she doesn't, she find, she'll do it, but she has no spiritual joy doing it. Someone with hospitality is like, I cannot wait for my small group to come here so I can love them and serve them. See, that differentiation is critical in gift definition. Hmm. Okay, well, that's good. Let's go to Word yeah. and then power. Yeah, well, yeah, teaching is a classic one, evangelism. Yeah. Let me give you encouragement and exhortation. I always love talking yeah, about yeah. this. Uh, encouragement, we write off people with encouragement in the church too quickly because we think they're flighty. Right. And it's hey, good job, John. Like, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, here's another letter. And they're the yeah. same person that always writes you the same letter. And there's stickers, and we're so glad. And after a while, you're like, oh, I don't know. No, no, they're, they're the real deal. I mean, they supernaturally feel called to encourage people in the faith. But exhortation is encouragement with a kick. And it's, uh, so let me give it like, this is how we work it out here. I say, when someone's an exhorter, they have this ability to sit with someone and encourage them. But by the end of the conversation, they've told you where to go in a really nice way. And when you walk away, you suddenly realize they hit you and you didn't know well it was happening. <laughs> And then you go, oh my goodness, I think they hit me. And you're yeah. like feeling your spiritual face, right? So encouragers tell you to keep going. Exhorters hug you and hit you at the same time when you're a little off alignment and That's say, awesome. keep going. And, in, and exhorters feel lonely. So here's an example. Because mm. they always are perpetually being led by the Spirit to correct people's paths. Well, every once in a while when you're sitting around with an exhorters, because they're nice and they're kind and they're loving, mm. they're not like brutish. You're like, man, I don't know if I want to be told again how to correct. So if you interviewed exhorters long-term, they feel it's very lonely. If you talk to encouragers long-term, they feel, they feel dismissed. So this is like the, the, the work that needs to be done in community to understand the, the bright side and the dark side of gifts and not to delegitimize. And then, and then the greater question, which I know a lot of your larger church pastors or actually small churches are asking, how do you put this into programs? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How, how do I do this? Um, anyway, and then power gifts like discernment. Here's just a great one. Discernment, uh, I say when I do lectures on this, goes up, down, and to the side. Uh, some people with a gift of discernment know God's in the room. 
some people with the gift of discernment know when the devil's in the room, and some people with the gift of discernment knows when the human heart is in the room and the motives aren't right. They can go in three directions. Sometimes certain people only have one direction. Fascinating. So, so when you do this, yeah, it well, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so a lot is a lot is uh, getting clearer as you speak. Yeah. 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 So like a word of knowledge, I don't take a static view on that where, you know, oh, I'm, I, I have a doctorate. I, I teach at a seminary, so I am knowledgeable. No, words of knowledge are, are situational words in moments for individuals where you get access to information that you should have no access to at all. And it actually brings someone's humility, their humbling or their healing, but it never hurts them. Hmm. So, so a great example of word of knowledge, I was sitting after a service, uh, one of our services here, and had this very strong sense I was supposed to pray with this woman I didn't really know at all. Large church. Uh, I always, we always pray in twos here. I grabbed another pastor, went to her, and said, may we pray for you? By the way, just I'm going to demonstrate this for your whole audience. Uh, may I pray for you? Not I'm going to pray for you. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. I said, okay. Then I said, by the way, as we pray for you, um, if the Lord might give a prompting, it could be wrong. So could you tell us if it's wrong? Sure. Okay. May I put my hand on you? Thank you. So I just started praying and I had this immediate vision in my head of her sitting in a bed, uh, reading her Bible and singing to Jesus. And I saw Jesus sitting on the side of the bed. And I said to her, do you do your devotions in your bedroom? And she looked at me shocked and said, yes. And I said, actually, not to be weird, but like you sit in bed and read your Bible and like sing to him. And, and she's like, yes. And I clear as day heard the Holy Spirit say, say to me, tell her Jesus is sitting on the edge of the bed and tell her Jesus hears her. So I did that right when I said it, she literally started weeping. You know, there's a difference between crying and weeping. Oh yeah. So she was weeping at her center and she just said, I didn't think he heard me anymore. I just didn't know. Now, so, so right in that moment, that's a word of knowledge that brought healing and humility and didn't hurt her. And remember, as I love what Bobby Clinton years ago said, power gifts demonstrate that God is really alive and in the room in the moment. And and so you asked me at the beginning, why does this matter in a post-Christian context? Because Muslims come to faith through encounter and witches come to faith through greater power. And skeptics are never going to come to faith because intellectually you argue them down. They're going to have to have a Damascus Road experience. And yet most conservative biblical confessional churches have made experience dangerous have told us to be suspicious of it and not given any mentorship to power gifts. And, and so here's the example I would use between you and I. If I screwed up on a sermon on a Sunday morning, yeah. the church wouldn't say, John, you never had the gift of teaching and you're a terrible leader. And actually it's been fake the whole time. They'd say, John, how you doing? What's going on? Yeah. But when someone screws up with a power gift, see it was fake. And I go, hold mm. on. What we need to do is give charity with people with love gifts, word gifts, power gifts, we need to build these common scripts. We need to really believe that when Jesus said, you can do the same things I'm doing. And when Jesus said, I listen to the Father, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. Like, if that's true, then this has to reorient everything and how we do all of this stuff. And we need to spend the long-term time, even in large programmatic strategic environments, to make this absolutely central. Hmm. Okay, uh, John, there's so many questions I have. <laughs> one, one would be, and I mean, this is something that we've shared too, yep. you know, as, as you've counseled me, you always say, Carrie, you're not charismatic, be careful. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I haven't forgotten that. No and, 
And we've had some some good experiences where yeah. uh, we prayed together and uh, we've seen we've seen God moving. Um, so mm-hmm. I can attest to that. If someone's like John, I have no clue how I'm spiritually gifted. Like I know what I'm good at. I know what I get promoted for at work or what other people sure. see in me. But like I don't. Maybe I don't have any. Which of course is not true. But how would they even begin to discover? Like, what is a process for discovering it other than, you know, fill out this online form and, you know, we'll spit the results back to you via email. Yeah. So I think the very first thing, and I'm not trying to be sappy at all, is this. You've got to pray and ask what gifts the Holy Spirit has given you. Because it's very clear, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. It's fundamentally clear, and if you look through those passages, at one point it says the Father gives a gift, at another point it says Jesus gives the gifts, at another point it says the Spirit gives the gifts. So you got to be a good Trinitarian, because we're good Christians, and you got to say, Father, Son, and Spirit, what gifts have you even given me? And then you need to read the passages and begin the conversation there. I mean, what we do in our context is we use my old sermon series to give common scripts. Um, there's not a lot of good stuff out there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem. But even a starting of a dialogue of what does the Bible say? Like, I, it's funny, you know, for years and years, I've been a pastor. I've been preaching and teaching and lecturing, but I never actually sat close to the scriptures and let Paul or Peter speak or even Jesus. Like, I didn't even know that the gift of miracles and the gift of, of uh, uh, the gift of miracles and healing are different gifts, but Paul makes them different. And I was like, hmm. what does that mean to me? I, I'd never thought about that. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is you need to talk in church community because a lot of times people will see what spiritual gifts you have or your leanings before you see them. So, you know, it's interesting in our connect group that that you mentioned the person who didn't know years ago in one of my connect groups, a guy was upset. He said, I don't have any spiritual gifts. And we said, well, that's not true. The Bible's clear. We all have them. He said, well, I don't know. And we all laughed at him. And he was like, this is the worst connect group ever. Like you're all (laughs) mocking me. And don't you care about me? And we're like, yes, but we all know what your spiritual gift is. He's like, you do? I said, yeah. I said, Steve. I said, every time you come to connect group, what do you do? He said, what do you mean? We hang out. I said, no, 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 no. When we pray, what do you always pray about? He's like, well, I was praying. He lists all these people. I said, and what's in common with all those people? Well, none of them know Jesus. Right. And then when you go to work, what do you do all the And the gift, the guy had one of the strongest gifts of evangelism. The problem was he had idolatrized an image of evangelism through Billy Graham. Ah, so because he's not speaking to stadiums, he doesn't have the gift. And just, so here's the other thing that's really critical, especially for teaching pastors out there who have to build the common script. You have to give a variety of on-the-ground experiences of how it can manifest. Mm-hmm. And this is great. And this goes to wait, by the way, if I may, to the other conversation you and I had uh, yeah. at the conference about calling. This this common script thing and, and working it out is so important to not only church unity, but also just to us uh, as leaders. So when I had the privilege of speaking at your conference, you asked me to talk about a leadership life site. A site yeah, yeah. And let's go through that. Uh, gifting is foundational to that, but I, I want to move in that direction. Yeah. So so I I was taking some time and preparing for your conference and and I said, could, is there such thing as a leadership life cycle that we could bring in a church context? And I said, yeah. And I said, we need to recover calling in the church. Calling has been lost in the church in, in many ways. And I think in these really difficult times, if we don't regain calling, 
we're going to be in real trouble. And, and I said, the problem is, if you don't have a common script and calling, you again start dismissing each other, just like the gift conversation. So I said, I think to you, I said, there's, I can find four biblical examples of calling. The first one is, I have no choice calling. It's mm-hmm. Jeremiah 1.4, you know, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and you're going to do this. Or Paul, right? On Damascus, I am Jesus. You're going to follow me. I'm the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. The Shekinah glory of God is around me. And boom, we're done, right? And Ananias, remember in Acts 9, he says, I'm not going to pray for this Saul guy. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you are, because yeah. I've decided I've appointed him both to kings and Gentiles and Jews. Can I, can I just clarify? Yeah. Are you talking about a call to vocational ministry? Vocational ministry. So in other words, anybody who is sort of leaving the marketplace, and I know there's a lot of business leaders who are like, I think I'm called but I really don't know. And, and I wonder, I remember this conversation a few months ago when we first had it, you know, there's probably a lot of missed callings because in the same way that you're talking about your friend, Steve in group, who, who says, well, if I'm not Billy Graham, I don't have the gift of evangelism. We have this inadequate theology of calling where there may be some people who are called like, no, you need this, what you're doing with your life. And they've missed it because they've never seen it. So I just wanted to frame that before we dove in. Amazing. And so, so most people you hear talk about calling is the first one. Right. And, like road know, to Damascus, right? right. Like that's, that's my experience. I yeah. had an encounter. Well, with that was mine too. I, yeah, yeah. I was in grade, grade seven, grade eight. Uh, Jesus didn't appear in the room, but it was pretty close. And he said, I've called you to be a pastor. And I said to him as a junior hire, I don't know if I love your church and I don't know if I want to obey you sexually. These were my two conditions. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a debate back and forth. I lost. I'm not shocked. Um, but it was like, and I, from that moment forward, I knew I had no, I re-earned my high school education, the whole bit. But the problem was, as I shared when we were together, the problem was I was hanging out with other pastors who didn't have a dramatic supernatural calling experience. Right. So I started dismissing them or wondering if they had been called. And in the reverse, they thought I was over-spiritualizing it because they were actually feeling insecure. Or that you were super flaky. 100%. Exactly. So, so then I went, hold on a second. Is there more calling stories in the scripture? And I was like, yeah. So one is that I have no choice. The second one is by gift, you know, second Timothy one, five, where Paul starts saying, you know, Timothy, you were called the elders laid hands, but there was a gift given to you. And so certain spiritual gift clusters lead naturally to vocational ministry and natural gifts and acquired gifts are there, but there are certain clusters. And at that moment, again, it's critical. And, and just to share this, if you're going into vocational ministry, 80% of your job description better be in your spiritual gifts. Mm. And, and, and this is so critical because so many pastors are called to be generalists and they end up being perpetually sad, broken, jaded, and burnt out because actually their congregation is refusing to let them be the shepherd pastor they've been designed supernaturally to be. So, so gift orientation could be the inception of calling, but also has to become the framing. So the example I did in my community, I stood up and said, I have a confession to make. And people were like, oh my gosh, he's falling. He's had an affair. He's leaving our church. And I said, my name's John Thompson. I'm your pastor, but actually I don't have the gift of pastoring. And everybody's like, what is he talking about? And I said three times. And then I just said, oh, I, I have teaching and I have leadership and I do speak in tongues and I have discernment, but I, I actually am not a shepherd. I have the office. So by the way, if your expectation of me is that I'm going to know your name and know your whole story, you should leave our church today. 
because hmm. your expectation of me is not biblically grounded. I said, the great news is we have hundreds of shepherds in our church, connect group leaders and pastors and stuff, but I'm not one of them. In other words, if I show up at the hospital, you're probably dying and that's about it. Yeah. Right? So, so gift, uh, a dramatic calling, gift orientation, and that's really helpful. The third one is given by family. And like I shared at your conference, this is very unwestern. We hate this. Because this goes against education and it's my right. But the story of Samuel is so critical to this, where Hannah says, I am giving Samuel unto the Lord for life. And some of us are called into ministry because of the work of the Spirit through our families. And one of the things to go back is ask the question, if you come from faith history, Christian history, what did mom and dad pray over me? What did my grandparents pray over me? What did my pastors pray over me? Because God might be speaking and you might have missed that. or Someone actually, someone is listening right now, and actually, that is your story, and you're about to quit ministry, and you may not, because you God is not letting you quit ministry right now. But you need to go back and hear what the generations have spoken over you through the Spirit. Can we unpack that a little more? I know we're going to come back to all of these, but like yeah. people are like, "What? My mom prayed a prayer when I was two, and now I'm sentenced to ministry. Like, how does that yeah. work?" Well, see, I love how you even say "sentence." So North American. <laughs> <laughs> because we believe my right, my education, I determine my future. But see, the thing is, the Bible is written to communities first and then people second. Yeah. And we got to get way more Eastern. Uh, as my great philosophy prof said, to think like a good evangelical, you must think like an Orthodox Jew. And he's 100% right. Mm -hmm. So here's what I'm saying. No, I'm not saying because your mom put her hand over you once, you're called into ministry. But if there is this growing sense where actually there's four, it's the rule of dots. Here's what I use with gifts too. If you have one experience, it's an experience. If you have two experiences, you go, hmm, I wonder. If it's three, four, five, nine, you should go, why is this pattern perpetually happening to me? So when I was 13 years old and I said to my parents, who by the way were missionaries, I feel I'm called to ministry. They were shocked. They had never talked hmm. to me about ministry. They had never talked about it at all. But they said, you know, John, it's really strange you say that. And I say, well, you know, junior high, John, why? She, they said, when, we, when you were six months old, we were at this uh, Billy Graham-style crusade, terrible name, but that was the day. And in Oshawa, out here, and the sort of Billy Graham of Canada at that moment was preaching. Very Baptist, very conservative, definitely not charismatic. And he walked up and he put his hand over my head as a baby in a stroller, you know, those 1970s strollers that be outlawed now, yeah. and, and, and said, this child, this child should become a great pastor and leader or evangelist or something, and walked away. And they were like, wow, they just looked at each other and said, that was weird and let's move on. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. It was the 70s. Yeah, yeah it was exact. Sure, bro. <laughs> uh, and you know what? Right when I said, I think I'm called to ministry, that's immediately what flashed in their mind. And then wow. we started unpacking all these moments. And I was like, you know what? This is true. This is true. Hmm. So uh, um, family given to ministry. And the last one is affirmation by community. And I think, you know, I think you and I were sharing this. In Acts 14, 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of the churches with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord. Uh, commit literally in Greek means just to raise a hand. And, hmm. and, and so there's a lot of people out there. I remember you, when we first talked to you, you said, oh, some of my friends don't even have calling stories. Yeah. Like some extremely influential pastors who would say, I... Haven't got a road to Damascus. Right. I, Mom didn't lay hands and say 14 things over me. You know, yeah. my gifts, I don't know. But, there, and that was my former senior pastor. He was an entrepreneurial business guy. And some people said, I think you should be a pastor. 
And I used to look down on him and, and in my heart go, see, he's, he, uh, he's just an entrepreneurial core value driven, pragmatic, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, oh, this is such a sin because actually sometimes it's just genuine community, community affirmation. Why bring all this up? Because the first thing you should do beyond gift orientation on teams for not just survivability, but thriving in a post-Christian environment, every staff member should know their calling story, should know what type it is, and share it with each other so there's unity built. Mm. And there's no superior group. So in other words, if, if you and I, who both have that road to Damascus, mine was a vision when I was 24 years old. Right. That was confirmed in in different things. But if it's like, no, you know, my mom always said go into ministry. And so she prayed over it. It was confirmed numerous times. So here I am in ministry. Or you know what? Uh, the community, I had 15 people just say, you got to be a pastor. You got to be a pastor. So I went to seminary and, you know, here I am. There's no superior breed of call. No. And, and here's the critical thing. I mean, this is the moment that changed my own life. When your calling is clear, then you can get on with your calling. Mm-hmm. If your calling isn't clear, you're in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and this is how Paul really helped me. That is St. Paul, not a Paul that you and I personally. <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians 4.1, if I may. Mm-hmm. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now that phrase, ought to regard, means you must agree with this whether you like it or not. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Paul. And he says, and I'm a servant. And the word in Greek is household slave. And and what's really profound, he's been using slavery language up to this point, but he changes the title. And a household slave in Roman culture was one who had full authority of the master, could make any decision on the master's behalf, but didn't own anything. So Paul says, I have been called by Christ, and my calling makes me a household slave. So actually, I have the right to lead you. So if your calling isn't clear, then you don't know if you're a household slave. If you don't know you're a household slave, you're going to doubt your whole ministry if you have authority to lead. If you doubt your authority to lead, uh, you're done. And don't forget, 1 Corinthians is written in a leadership crisis where the church basically was looking for a super pastor. I think I said at your conference, mm-hmm. with they wanted a professor that was good looking, dressed amazing, had a few hundred thousand Instagram followers, could debate anyone at University of Toronto, speak in tongues, cast out demons, while holding a handcrafted flat white in his hand, talking about how many languages he spoke on his latest blog. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> right? Like, right? that's what they demanded. And Paul says, oh, I don't care what you think. I'm called. And then he says in verse two, but I have to actually remain faithful. So he did this, like, I have full authority, and my calling is clear, but the faithfulness, I have to prove that this is real in character over time. But then the, the, the biggest thing for me was verse 3 when he says, and I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. I don't even judge myself. And it's this idea that he says, my calling is so crystal clear. I'm so clear about my gifts and my authority. And then he says, but I'm actually haunted that I'm going to give an account to Jesus, that I don't really care what you think because I'm actually in way more trouble with Jesus than you. And, hmm. Like So the call, he's got all this power in his hands. His calling is clear. His authority is clear. His gifts are clear. He centers his whole ministry there and then says, oh, by the way, and, I, and I'm not going to buy into popularity. I mean, how many of us carry need to be free of that? Oh, yeah. Well, see, you're talking about an independent authority, right? You're talking, you're talking about that in in a very different way than I think a lot like it's 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 like you know I don't want to get into the heart of Calvinism here but you know <laughs> one one of the things one of the things that Calvin said about his doctrine of election 
and a lot of people miss this, is that it should be pastoral care to the elect. Right. Like, you don't have to sit there and worry every day, am I in, am I out, did, did this negate my salvation? He's like, this is pastoral care. Now, people interpret that as sloth or inertia or the whole deal, that's the sure. wrong interpretation. Um, but what you're saying is the authority doesn't actually come from the results. It doesn't come from the congregation. It doesn't come from your latest angry email that you got in your inbox. Or it your latest from blog or book. Or, or, your, or your success. Frankly, right. it doesn't come from your success either, right? right. It doesn't come from, from any of that. So, so for me, again, rooting the church uh, in spiritual gifts and disciplines brings a health and dynamic and vitality. But for us who are leading, We've got to get fundamentally clear about our calling stories, where the authority is coming from, proving faithful, ask, really believing that we're going to be judged. And then like I shared with your community, and then I asked the question, but how do you handle electricity well in your hand over a lifetime? Yeah. And it's 1 Corinthians 13. It's the same question about gifts. And the thing that I've been so, so challenged in my life lately about gifts and disciplines and leadership and strategy and all this stuff is I've been reading 1 Corinthians 13 every single day and asking the Holy Spirit to make me this. Because agape love is the only thing that's going to let me hold calling right, use gifts right, and actually make it in the long run. So if calling, if sovereign calling in any form is the inception point and the power, love is the way you make it in the long term. And, mm -hmm. and, and I said to our church a few weeks ago, Stop saying statements like, well, you know, if you pray for patience, be careful. God's going to answer you. He is going to answer you. It, it's actually his heart to make <laughs> you love, right? And it's the same with me. So I'm begging God to make me patient, kind. I've been thinking about the phrase in 1 Corinthians, you know, doesn't speak ill of others. Oh, my goodness. As a leader, as a Christian leader, really? Like never? No record of wrongs? So I with calling and gifts being so strong for me and real and the epicenter of, of root, rooted ministry. Now my whole prayer is at 42, because I'm in the, right, this weird mm -hmm. place. I'm a Gen Xer. There's very few of us in, even in ministry. So I'm sort yeah. of straddling the millennial baby boomer war or conversation. Uh, as our good friend, one of our good friends uh, said to me the other day, the Gen X movement's role in the church is to pass the baton between generations. Very <laughs> Thank you. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer at the top end, uh, yeah, so thank so you. Yeah, so we're, we're going to try. John. No problem. But I think I think the love thing, if if there's anything I could say, it doesn't matter how many gifts you discover, how powerful they are, the amount of influence you're given. Asking for 1 Corinthians 13 love as a leader every single day and reading it and saying, literally, Holy Spirit, do this. Uh, and I think the last three months has taught us, man, uh, we need this desperately because it doesn't matter how you're anointed or appointed, you know. And then the last thing, just share without love, thought, without love. And and you go, yeah, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. But when I started reading it and saying, it's Moses and the staff called, authority beyond belief, spiritually gifted. The gift of the staff was in his hand, and he still used anger, and misused the right gift. Uh, I think I shared when we were together. You can have right gifts and still sin with them. So this loving thing. And then the last thing I've just been learning at 42 is how do I prepare to die well in ministry? And if, if calling is the inception point, it's the death point because I'm a household slave, so I own nothing. Uh, so it's the Lord of the Rings, you know, preachers love Lord of the Rings, but Lord of the Rings, the steward of Gondor, if you know that scene, there's this great white throne and then there's this little wooden throne at the bottom. And anytime a steward starts acting like the king, they go insane. And, uh, and so 
you know, if calling reminds us that we have great profound authority, gifts show us that we've got it. And calling reminds us we own nothing that we lead. We don't own the people, the churches, the money, the nothing, anything. And so what I've started doing as a spiritual discipline is, is praying for my successor, even though I'm only 42, I'm praying for my successor. Mm. So to, to remind me um, that actually I own nothing that love's more important. And one day I'm going to have to give all this up and actually I have to be okay with it. Hmm. That's a, that's a really different and I think very helpful and comprehensive understanding of calling. So a few questions for you, John. One of the things I learned, have always believed, and have taught is that your calling is affirmed or confirmed in the people around you. So my road to Damascus, which happened to me at 24, it was a supernatural experience, literally was affirmed not only by my soon-to-be fiancé and wife, uh, but by my parents, by people in my church, by a seminary, and, and ultimately by a congregation that says, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you around. Um, you know, do you need affirmation? Because we've all had, and this goes back to the very early part of our conversation, you know, with spiritual gifting, it's like, John, I've got the gift of discernment. And let me tell you what God is telling you right now. You know, da, 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 right. I'm the only guy in the world that thinks I've got the gift of discernment. Right. Uh, is, is that a trap? Like, what would you say if someone's like, no, I am called, but nobody else thinks they're called? Yeah, so actually that straddles the gift, discipline, and call conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's why actually this just can't be programmatic and this takes time. Because uh, if no one else is hearing, there's a good chance you're not called. Right. If you're yeah. the only one who's like... Yeah, if, if you know, and but here's my only caution. And it's a real caution. You know, if if we said that by their fruit, it is obvious, mm. uh, and that was the only standard, we have to have throw, we'd have to throw out the whole Old Testament. Because that's saying the people of God never would have been the people of God. <laughs> or, or when you say something like, well, God was obviously not there, because did you see all that weird stuff that happened? I'm like, well, in the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure the living Shekinah glory of God was in the middle of the camp when they did all sorts of crazy things. Mm. So... Let's just be really careful not to dismiss the presence of God, the calling of God, the disciplines of God, or the gifts of God when wrong things happen or gifts or things are misused or misunderstood. And then say, see, he was never there. Well, history, holy history teaches us something different. And so this is why I always say pastor's role is not to dismiss experience, but to evaluate it. Hmm. And and our and our especially in Carrie because you and I know see each other really well especially A type uh, Enneagram eight I don't know if that's what you are but you know yeah intense, I think I think I must take, be because so many people tell me I am oh okay I wouldn't know that but like intense take the and I'm one of them too where we're like oh I got no time for that well actually hold on um, you know as the Bible says all the time the word no is the Hebrew meaning of no not the Greek version of no. And to know, K-N-O, ah. K-N-O-W, not, not N-O. So in other words, when we talk about knowing God, it's, it's intellectual and emotional. It's, mm. it's this integrated thing, not just a Greek version of no. So, so we have to sit back and go, just because just it's weird doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm. Uh, just because it's odd doesn't mean, I mean, let's just let the Bible talk. Weird is not the category of dismissal for us as Christians at all. Right. Like, just read your scriptures. It's bizarro land. The question is, the question is, what's the source behind what you're seeing? Hmm. Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it the butter chicken from last night? 
And so, you know, you really got to work on having people with discernment, looking for character issues, theological integrity, all of that's on the table. And I find that a lot of people are called, but out of youth make a ton of mistakes, but I would never dismiss their calling. Yeah. How does calling, understanding your calling, whether that's gift-based or supernatural or family, or what's the final source? Just uh, community, yes. Community, thank you, community. Regardless of what it is, how does that sustain you in the long haul? Because burnout is a big issue today. I am firmly convinced, as I'm sure you are, John, that a lot of people walk away for their calling from their calling before God has walked away from their calling. Yep. You know, it's like, hey, Carrie, you're still uh, you're still called. I see you over yep. there in the corner. Uh, right. What are you doing there? What? Yep. Uh, explain how this creates perseverance and longevity. Yeah. Yeah, this has been my own story. And by the way, I want to say this right up front. This does not dismiss counseling or yes. getting help with anxiety or this doesn't diminish mental illness or spiritual conflict. I just I want to say that out loud because the, these conversations get uh, very convoluted too quickly. But here's what I would say for me. If you're not sure if you're called, you really got to sit with it because it's the only thing that you're going to have in certain minute, certain periods of ministry. So there were years here when I was leading change from the church I grew up in, and um, and I was really alone. And I think I actually got into some clinical depression, as I shared with you. Yeah. And I remember waking up in the shower every morning going, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Yeah. And I heard the Spirit of God say to me, I'm with you. That's all he said. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was not just with me, like he's with every Christian. There was this calling connection. And that was the literal thing that kept me going. And I knew that I knew that I knew that God had called me into ministry. So I knew somehow God had my back. And that's why I say calling is not just the bedrock for perseverance. Calling is the bedrock for the authority to stand up in the first place. And I remember being in Bible college and walking around, and this is not a statement of arrogance, wondering why two-thirds of the people were even there. And when I asked them, they were like, well, I couldn't get a job somewhere else or I wasn't sure. And I'm like, this is insanity. This is the hardest job on earth. You're telling me that you're going to go break the word of God, deal with people's interpersonal stuff. Supposedly, the kingdom of darkness is real and hates us and wants us to be destroyed. And oh, yes, social media, mental illness, you know. And I'm like, this is a second job for you? No, no, like, run, 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 you know, like, serve the church. I've seen that profile more than once. Run. So I'm just saying the perseverance in my life, it uh, was produced because I knew that I knew that I was called and he had chosen me to do this. It had at, at points, I used it as idolatry or arrogance, but now it's just that pastoral deep thing that keeps me going. That doesn't mean I don't need feedback. That doesn't mean that I'm not loving. That doesn't mean I don't need to have that. That's not what I'm saying. But it's the bedrock that I know. And my concern, Carrie, is most people want to be counselors these days and spiritual directors because in 90 minutes, they're done. Wow. And, and hear me right. I have counselors in my life, and I have a spiritual director on staff. And I, I respect the professions, and I'm glad they're in the church, and they're desperately needed. But pastoral ministry, the call to shepherd God's people, to teach God's word, to serve the ordinances or sacraments, if you call them, to, to be the rudder in a very, very tumultuous, changing world. Every generation of Christians needs unashamed pastors. Pastors who are unashamed of the gospel, love the scriptures, know church history well, so they're not arrogant and think everything new is best mm-hmm. and everything old is, is you know, they're aware 
that that expect God to keep showing up, that love people. Like we need called leaders in this moment that are sure of their calling, sure of their gifts, and are working on their character. The disaster in the last four months in leadership circles that we've seen, both in the Protestant and Catholic worlds, is only demonstrating the need for this more, not less. uh, A few more questions for you, John. I'm thinking about, because this is is close to my heart, having thought I would spend a life in law, the professions, business, that kind of thing, and then ending up in ministry— but, you know, one of my concerns is uh, I, you know, we have an issue of just recruiting bright young leaders into the ministry, people, people yeah. who can really make an impact for the kingdom. And I'm firmly convinced most of them have just, you know, they may be unaware of a calling. So you've got thousands of business leaders listening right now, men and women who have strong gifts and yeah. uh, love Jesus and are involved mm-hmm. in their church. And, you know, they're exercising a gift of leadership or communication or um, shepherding in, in the marketplace. How would they know that they're not called? Yeah. Like how, would they, how, yeah. Would they, how would they even like, oh, okay, well, now we've got gifts base and we've got community yeah. and we've got family. I've got no road to Damascus. Okay, understood. Or maybe yeah. they had, you know, that, that their hearts were strangely warmed you know, when they were 14 or something like that, but they've forgotten that that was a long time ago. I want you to talk to them and yeah, just, sure. just help them because I think that is an area of mass confusion. And like you say, not a lot of people teach on this and I probably don't teach on it enough either. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to remind everyone within the sound of my voice, we're all called. <laughs> right. In, in the sense that we're all Christians, we all love Jesus, we all have access to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. There's common, uh, there's common ground through the cross and so we all share a common calling. And whether you're a lawyer or a stay-at-home mom or dad or a plumber or an IT executive, like first and foremost, just be a great, loving Christian where you are. Please, for the love of God, just be loving where you are, <laughs> first mm. and foremost, because we need salt and light everywhere. And we need great lawyers and great doctors. And we need great, we need to just be Christians wherever we're at. So first thing. Second of all, when I hang out with people, what I find uh, not strange, just interesting is most people never ask. Yeah. They wonder, but they never ask. And I wonder sometimes if it's they're afraid. I don't know if it's a North American thing where we're afraid if we say it out loud, we're screwed. Hmm. Like if I say it out loud, suddenly it's not just real. God like really heard it. <laughs> like, right, right, right. I right? don't want to like, articulate oh, that. Uh, so if I say it out loud, then, you know. So I would say to people, if you have a stirring or a wondering that you might be called into, uh, you know, Christian ministry vocationally in some way, just literally go before God and say, I'm honestly open. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to fight you. But, but right when you do that, you've already said your children are on the line, your money's on the line, your, your job is on the line, yeah. your future's on the line. So that's why I think most people um, fantasize about maybe the option or run from it. But most people just don't say to Jesus, you know what, I, uh, maybe I'll put it this way. Most of us who are Christians love Jesus deeply, but we don't trust him. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, he's, yes. he's good. He's going to save us. New heavens, new earth, resurrection. Uh, and we trust him sort of. So one of the habits I'm in that terrifies me when I drive to work is that I list everything I own. Or anything. Okay. That's or, a habit while you're driving to work. You, yeah. you list what you own. And who I, who I love. So my wife, 
my children. I don't know my wife and children, by the way, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I know my, what you mean. My health, my education, the church I work at, the job, and I list it all. And I say to Jesus almost every day, not every day, I just say, as worship, it's yours. And I actually don't own it. And I want to own it. And I'm terrified when I say you can have it. Because I, I know you're good, but I know that you're not controllable. And, I, and, and this is a way I'm trying to learn how to know the holiness and love of God intention and, and admit I'm not creator. <laughs> but deeper than that, I'm trying to trust him. And, and, uh, I love Jesus. I love the father and the spirit. You know, this carry so much. I love God so much. And yet I still feel this pull to, to, um, uh, guard myself from him mm-hmm. and, uh, to hide, you know, Adam and Eve hid. It's the thing. It's the thing. It's the, it's the ancestral thing we've got in us to hide from him. So if you're thinking about calling, that wasn't a rabbit trail. If you're thinking about calling, the first thing you need to say is, yeah, all this stuff is on the table. And then you need to say, and Lord, would you start confirming very directly dreams, sermons, th- through my devotions, through a Bethmore study I'm doing, through yeah. my, my Women's Connect group, through the guys I hang out with, through sermons that my pa- like, start building the narrative. But here's the opposite end. If he doesn't call you, don't be discouraged. Right. Get on to what you've been called to do. Because he has called you into, you know, medicine or nursing or plumbing or... Right. Whatever. Brother, and read Brother Lawrence's little book because yeah. Brother Lawrence, his famous little book, right? Practicing the presence of God. He talked about how his greatest encounters with God were by washing pots and pans. Yeah. And so if a monk who washes pots and pans can encounter God his whole life, you can do it raising four kids. You can do it in a lawyer's office. You, mm-hmm. you can do it being a bus driver. You, you, can, you can do it as a pilot. There's a pilot out there, I think, right now listening to me. You can do it in the middle of 35,000 feet above where we're living right now. But also, I think Carrie and I would both agree together in the Canadian context, but actually in the global context. We, we are desperate, not just for good, thoughtful leaders, especially young leaders who are ready to take the hill. Uh, we need called leaders. And I actually yeah. don't care how old they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd take anyone who's, I'll take an 18-year-old who's called or a 7-year-old who's called more than someone who's gifted and is not sure. Yeah. And again, I think I think one of the things, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but if you're operating out of your natural gifting, that kind of runs out. You know, there's a certain point at which you're just tired all the time. And there has to be, you know, you can have rest and balance, but I think passion ultimately over the long haul comes from God. And, you know, there's that chariots of fire line that we've all quoted a million times. But when I run, when I teach, when I actually, when I do this, I feel God's pleasure. And, you know, there is that sense that probably on at least some of your days over the long haul, you're going to feel God's pleasure. That, That the gift... Is it true that when you're operating, and I'm floating this, this is not a rhetorical question, it's an honest question, but is it true that when you're operating out of your gift set that you should, over time, see some kind of disproportionate result to effort? That, in other words, this is more than I could do of my own. I would say yes, but you got to be very careful that you don't make that numeric. Yes. But I mean, I mean, like, okay, you're sitting by a hospital yep. bedside, yep. which is not my gifting. Yep. And you, you may have spent 20 minutes with this person, uh, but it's as though you spent a year with them and yeah. it was transformative for them. So it's not just you're up and to the right. 
Exactly. And I would say the example is there was a guy formerly on staff here who was not a great preacher at all. I used to jokingly say he'd sneeze and people would come to Christ. And it would drive me crazy because I, you know, preach 40 minutes and write doctrine and it was, and very few people. And I suddenly realized, see, it's, it's about gift. But when mm-hmm. I would teach, people would go, oh, that's who God is. And once this comparison stuff got out of the way, everything again changed because the well got deeper for him and the well got deeper for me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, I always use the, not a joke, uh, who was wrong in the fight between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark? All the pastors, shepherds, mercy people will say, well, Paul's an ass. He's rude. He's not nice. He doesn't care. And Barnabas was right. And then every leader in the room usually doesn't want to speak because they don't want to get in trouble. They're like, oh my gosh, Paul is right because he's got a movement. I'm going to sacrifice the one for the 99. By the way, that's if you know, by the way, your gift orientation, ask yourself this question as you listen to this podcast. Would you leave the 99 for the one or would you leave the one for the 99? That will tell you so much about how you're gifted. And by Mm. the way, neither are wrong. That's why we work in community. But this intertension between us we need Paul and Barnabas. And the answer is Paul and Barnabas were both right and they were both wrong. But it was gift tension, not personality tension. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to share with us? All I, I just encourage all my fellow leaders, you know, today, wherever you might be, plane, train, automobile, I don't know, somewhere else, pray about love. Mm. Like pr- pray out of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, faithfulness matters more than fame. And uh, the reason why we all like Jesus so much is because he is First Corinthians 13 incarnate. Yeah, you're right. It's the way we love him. And, it is. And so just pray, start praying that no matter how limited or large your influence pool is from God, uh, no matter your gift orientation, no matter your calling, uh, that First Corinthians 13 would take a much larger role. And I've, as I've confessed to you, Carrie, personally and, and actually online, uh, in another podcast, I'm so far from this. Hmm. I'm so far from this, but I just, I don't want to be a 55 year old leader who's jaded, angry, hates the church and doesn't love his wife very much anymore. Yes. I just don't Amen want to. Amen to that. Amen to that. I don't, don't want to. All right. I got one more question. Sorry. I, I, uh, <laughs> I recorded this on a day where I went under general anesthetic, some of which is apparently not worn off, but anyway, uh, it's always fun to do stuff while heavily medicated. Um, no, here's my question for you. Yeah. So this has been a pretty deep teaching. Like, you know, you gotta, you gotta pay attention. You're not just skimming over bullet points for this. And, and this is characteristic of your ministry. Yeah. One of the tensions of our age is that people say that folks have shorter and shorter attention spans. Young people don't have, uh, the capacity for sophisticated argument. What would you say to that? I, I sense something is I sense so much of that is wrong. I tend to agree with Jordan Peterson that we're capable of long-form thinking that uh, people have bandwidth for nuanced argument and actually want to go deeper on this stuff. Um, What's your experience dealing with postmodern, post-Christian people that you're trying to reach every weekend, almost 3,000 of them at C4 Church? Yeah, my my answer is uh, uh, both opinions are right. There There are many, many who do want the nuance, do want to think, do want to intellectually engage, want to be thoughtful. And there are others who live by Twitter and die by Twitter and don't care. I mean, it, it's okay. true. Um, 
it's true. Here, here's what I would say, and this is not a Christian statement. This is a civilization statement. <laughs> I'm still going to keep thinking. And I'm still going to keep teaching because, and not just teaching, um, you know, as an idea, like we desperately need uh, thoughtful leaders who are wrestling with big ideas that still can be human. And, And by the way, that's why, just going back to this, you need to affirm all the gifts in your community because many people will come to faith through nuanced intellectual argumentation. Other people who will never even have the intellectual capacity to understand half of what you and I have talked about will come to faith because they're loved by someone. And other mm-hmm. people will walk through our doors because they had a dream of Jesus. And, you know, you, you, you attract who you are. So, again, we probably attract uh, an, uh, an emotively artistic thinking audience here. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim Keller's church feels very different than Hillsong down the street, right? Yes. Uh, and, and go team. Right? Right, right. God's using all of them. Yes. They attract a different audience. You'll always attract. But, you know, I had friends in New York who went to Tim Keller in the morning and Hillsong in the evening. And what we joke around here is we are that together every single Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of are, actually, John. That's a really good, that's a good articulation of what you do. You're Hillsong and Keller fused at the hip. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, no, I really think there's a lot of people who still can think. I just don't know if they want to. Mm. It's, it's we're tired as a culture and it's easier not to think sometimes escapism is a big problem for us yeah john always rich thank you so much i want to thank you personally too i mean some of this has been really instrumental for me even this year because we've had conversations spent some time together in person even spent some time praying uh, together, really meaningful. So I just want to say thank you. Um, are those 11 sermons on gifting still available? Yeah. So c4church.com is our website, okay. pretty normal church website. And if you just go under media, they're really old now. Like I think right. 2011, a lot of sweater vests. Uh, sweater terrible, vests and sweat, uh, camera work's not great. Uh, no, that's, that's all there. We're redoing them this year publicly. Okay. And we'll link to those in the show notes to C4. And yeah. if people want to learn more about you, um, what's the easiest website? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's the there. Yeah, that would be great, that website. Mm-hmm. John, thank you so much. Thanks, Kerry. Well, as I said, time has passed since we did the interview, so the book is now live. You can go to thrivewithconvergence.com, or if you want, just jump into the show notes. Go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 231, or go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Or go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and just hop in over there and you'll you'll find everything uh, on that website. So guys, we are back next week with a fresh episode. I'm really excited because coming up this month, we got some great guests. Uh, Christine Birch is going to be my guest in a couple of days. We're releasing a Thursday episode and she is going to talk to you. This this was actually originally on my Canadian Church Leaders podcast. And I got to tell you, it's powerful. We got so much response. I said, okay, I got to throw it on my leadership podcast. And then next Tuesday, it's Daniel Pink. But in the meantime, here's an excerpt from Thursday's episode with Christine Birch. We almost have to be social geniuses in some cases. We have to be able to read people (laughs) and um, and kind of gauge if they want to be engaged or not. But... um, Act in a way that is welcoming and and not overbearing. Um, 
but yeah, I think those people need to be identified by possibly right. how they're dressed in a t-shirt or a name tag at very least. But having a team in and of itself that is there to do that is a sign that you have expected someone to come. Yeah. So if that name sounds like vaguely familiar, it's either because you listen to the Canadian Church Leaders podcast when that podcast was active or... Um, she's actually Rich Birch's better half. If you follow on seminary as I do, you may know that name from Rich. Anyway, Christine uh, is a friend. She works at Connexus Church where I work. And I think you're going to love that conversation in a couple of days. And next week, we're back on Tuesday with Daniel Pink, the New York Times bestselling author. And I had so much fun nerding out with him about the science of time. It's, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. So uh, look forward to that. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And remember, check out the special offers. It is not too late to lead your church in January through the Red Letter Challenge. It's a done-for-you 40-day turnkey devotional campaign for your church. Go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. And remember, what's your mobile strategy? Check out pushpay.com forward slash carry for a special offer. Guys, I'm so excited to have done this with you. We will see you next time. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.